0: Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, everyone. I am your host, Zach Beach, and I'm here with not just one, but two incredible guests, Dr. Glenn and Phyllis Hill. Hello, both of you, and welcome to the show. Yeah, thank Hi, you. Zach. Hello, hello. <laughs> yeah,
1: thanks for having us on the show.
0: Yeah. Mm. Today, we're going to be talking about how to stop fighting and start connecting. And for those that don't know, Dr. Glenn and Phyllis Hill are authors, speakers, and founders of The Connection Codes. After 30 years in a marriage filled with pain, which we'll get to, Dr. Glenn went back to school to figure out what was causing marriage to be so difficult. He got his master's in marriage and family therapy and a doctorate in clinical sexology, and together they were able to turn their marriage around after discovering what causes disconnection and what deepens connection. They are the authors of the connection codes, the blueprint, and tools for creating the relationships you crave. How are you both today? Wonderful. Yeah, it's a beautiful,
1: it. sunny day here in Tennessee, and
0: hmm. green is everywhere. Is here. Yes. It's amazing. So I'm glad you're doing well because I've been reading about basically how terrible your marriage was towards the beginning. You're pretty open about it, so we're not necessarily airing out any dirty laundry. But it sounds like at the beginning of your marriage, kind of stunk. You say that the first five years were horrific, pretty strong words, and went on to 30 years of pain, which is a pretty long time. I have to ask, you know, was it all so bad? And if it was, why didn't you just get divorced at year two? Yeah,
1: it is a good question. I I have asked myself that at times too. I think we met young, 15, 16. We kind of, Glenn didn't really have a family. He left home at 14. I left home at 17. So we kind of clung to each other. And we really believed in marriage. We believed in the institution of marriage. We believed... In what we were striving for, it was just we didn't have the tools. Yeah. And even our marriage, or I mean, our wedding, like everything prior, we thought we were setting ourselves up mm-hmm. for success. Mm-hmm. And we kind of had that list, whether we made it up or whether we got it from others. But it's like there were things, you know, we both had really good jobs, good salary. We bought our house, closed on it two weeks before the wedding. Like on paper, mm-hmm. everything looked really Mm. good. We had a community. We had community support. We had Mm. all the things. And even the dreamy wedding. Mm. Glenn wrote songs that he (laughs) sang to me in the wedding. He sang to me as I walked down the aisle. Mm. It was magical, all the things. But... What we didn't know, and and we are faith based, and we came from very conservative family of origin, faith, and kind of signed on to the idea of we're not going to have intercourse before we marry. That's mm. we're gonna we're gonna do that because that's the right thing to do, mm. and that will lead you to absolute success, is what we believed. And then our wedding night was for me a disaster mm. and quite the shock.
2: Mm. Yeah, which was the greatest eleven seconds of my life. I was thrilled and startled at her lack of gratitude. Mm -hmm. Um, But in in specific answer to your question, Zach, we wanted to be together. We married on Mm -hmm. purpose. It was not an arranged marriage or a shotgun Mm -hmm. wedding. So we did not know at any point that, oh, well, this is going to be years and years of Mm -hmm. pain and disconnect. And so we always thought that we were three hours, three days, three weeks from nirvana, from from arriving. And we Mm -hmm. kept thinking, and I don't know. I mean, if we, if somebody had been able to tell us, hey, kids, you're in for two decades of pain, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know what that would have done for us. Mm-hmm. But we just kept thinking any day now, you know, any, any week now, we're bound to be right there on the cusp. Uh, I read books like crazy. Couldn't get her to read the books because she thought they were all about sex. <laughs> So we just kept thinking, we've got to get there because we had married on purpose. And 24 hours Mm -hmm. before our wedding, we were excited about Happily Ever After. And we couldn't figure out what the heck had happened. How did we get lost so badly, so quickly? And then we started over the years realizing that this was true for virtually everybody. And uh, 10 years in, all of our friends started divorcing. And we're like, what the heck happened with them? It didn't happen with us because just like you say, we didn't legally divorce. Uh, I would suggest that technically we were divorced. We just didn't file the paperwork on it because we lost each other. We were disconnected. Mm-hmm. You know, if marriage is about a relationship, divorce is the loss of that
0: relationship. And we had definitely lost
2: that relationship.
0: That's so interesting that almost this belief that the good is just around the corner kind of kept you on this path of staying in the bad. And I know your marriage is really good now and we, we can get to that. But I am curious if there's any... You know, regret or almost leftover resentment or bitterness, because when we do have negative experiences in our life, I do find there's often residuals. You know, you ruin this this portion of my life, and I'm also curious because you you said you believed past tense in waiting until sex after marriage, and I am curious if you could do it all over again, what you might do differently.
1: Well. Well, you've just jumped many decades <laughs> one way, and then you went back to the beginning. So mm. if we had five or six hours, we would really mm. be able to dive so much deeper into so many mm. things. But I would say the the whole idea of waiting until marriage is a topic we could do many podcasts on, mm. I believe. The miss was that we had no education around sex. No one talked about it. No one talked mm. to us about it. No one. Like, and... We didn't come from families that talked about it. We didn't come from a church community that talked about it. We didn't come from anywhere. And so that was the real miss. The miss was we did not know what we were doing. And we thought that it was just this mystical, magical thing that happens, almost like this is your reward. You know, it's not that we didn't make out. It was just that was the one line we didn't cross. So then we thought, oh, well, now that we're married, now we get to, you know, we waited, we get to open the gift. And we thought it would Mm -hmm. just be this instant magic. But the lack of education actually did so much damage Mm. because we didn't know. And, you know, I remember talking to my mom many years later and she said, oh, well, honey, I just thought you'd figure it out. And I'm like, well, yeah, eventually I did (laughs) figure it out. But gosh, (laughs) there was so much pain. Mm in the f- trying to figure it out that did so much damage now do you want us to address the other part of that question which was bitterness <laughs> resentment yeah
0: let's do it Oh, that's the yeah that was. that's
1: like yeah. that's jumping more right. into what we do now mm-hmm. which is the whole emotional side and learning how to process emotion mm-hmm. because there was definitely a lot of damage done and a lot of trauma from those early years that yes does it still come around does it still affect us today Yes, but we now have the tools mm. which is all about the connection right. codes yeah. that we now understand we can process that pain. Yeah. We can show up for each other in that pain. We can hear right. that pain without it causing conflict, without it causing more pain. It's almost like it's like mm. letting more of it out of yeah. the body. Yeah. That we yeah. have learned there's so much power in that.
2: Yeah. So yeah. I, I would say that there's not bitterness Mm-hmm. Uh, there definitely is trauma and, you know, trauma mm-hmm. is the working definition of trauma is basically a current emotional reaction based on a, a previous event. So, yeah, you know, we're very much affected by things that, that may have happened 30 years ago and that still trigger us today. We just have the tools to know how to process
0: that. Yeah, it's so interesting. We've had a few episodes on the podcast around just healing from the shame and guilt that's put on to us by society, by culture, and also by the church around not enjoying and loving our bodies and seeing sex as a good and pleasurable thing between two people rather than something to feel guilty about. And I'm curious if you feel like it's a practice or it's a process or like how long you feel like it's taking you to have a more healthy an accepting view of sexuality and if you're still learning now for example
2: oh yeah well i'm 61 so apparently it takes 61 years uh, <laughs> so far um and I, I would say there were some definitely uh definite distinct leveling up experiences but You know every human's unique, so there's no way to know exactly the formula that that would uh, look like for each individual. But I would say that we've had a healthy view for quite some time now. But that does not mean that our experience is always uh, healthy or from a healthy perspective, even though we have the intellectual knowledge for it.
1: Well, you know the 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 honeymoon for me was traumatic.
2: Hmm. Came
1: home, didn't know who to talk to because no one had talked to us before. So sadly, it was a few years before. I even right. spoke about it at all. And mm. then I, at this point, we just concluded I was broken. Mm. So it was just that that was why there was no pleasure for me. And it, And then I finally voiced that to a friend, our closest couple friend. And she was just shocked, like, what do you mean you're broken? How in the heck did you come to that conclusion? And then it was the first time that we spoke of it. And by the time that one conversation was over, I realized I wasn't broken. And I felt so much hope in that. And then got super curious, super curious about the female body, super curious about the clitoris, super, you know, the orgasms, like, And once I had a little bit of knowledge and started to figure this thing out, and actually had my first orgasm, it was mind blowing. It was like, oh, that's what we're missing. (laughs) That's the pleasure is what was missing, and to figure that out, it was like, wow. There now, the sky's the limit on my interest. Glenn was the scholar; he was the one reading always, and back then. That 40 years ago there was not a lot mm. out there. There was yeah. uh, for your listeners that may not even be able to understand this, there was no yeah. internet, there was no Google, <laughs> there was you know no social media. There was there was very little. It's like if you could find a good book, and most to be honest, most books mm. were either super just like textbook educational which were not practical or it was a few Christian books that were written that were more telling you how you know, sinful masturbation was. So Mm. those were confusing. Um, There was not a lot of help out there, but we got very curious and were just determined for our own, just for our own marriage that we were going to learn as much as we could Mm. about ourselves, our bodies Mm. and pleasure. And then we were like, you know what? We have to start talking about this because nobody's talking Mm. about it. And we don't want our friends to go into the same. So every... Engaged couple, we were always like, "Hey, we want to talk to y'all. We want to tell our story." So we began telling our story because we thought the way people will listen is if we tell our story, mm-hmm. and right. and what we've learned since then, kind of, and that started mm-hmm. opening up so many doors for us because people were like, "Wow, this couple is willing to talk about real things. They're willing to talk about their pain. They're willing to share their story, which is not always an easy thing to do." I mean. Now for many, many years, we've shared it over and over, but it is that reminder that people don't talk like this. Mm-hmm. They don't share openly about that kind of stuff. And so 40 years later, we're still finding that this yeah. is still a topic that people don't want to just be super open about, especially if in telling their own story in telling their own stuff. And so we though find that if we're not going to be transparent and open, this will never change. And we're just passing it down to the next generation.
0: So I would love to hear more about your story. And can you tell our listeners a little bit about the years where things really began to shift to a more connected, intimate partnership?
2: Well, um, I always say that I'm the educated one. Phyllis is the smart one. Uh, she's the one that actually figured things out that matter. And uh, and literally all of the benchmarks in our relationship were her doings, where she realized something and made a shift. And one of those was in the 2000s. Phyllis said, "Babe, as hard as you work, we should be rich, and we're not rich, so you got to quit working." Uh, which I thought was remarkable that for anybody, but for mm-hmm. this woman to have, and she'd never worked for a paycheck uh, before, so for her to i mean as far as for, you know providing for our family and we had four children at that point and um she said i'll take care of money and she said you go back to school learn explore discover figure out and we had such a passion for marriage already and our relationship had shifted uh, some and again we didn't know what we know now so we had no idea the the potential the upside beauty and potential of what a relationship could be but we were better off then And we had been, and we were better off than most of the couples around Mm -hmm. us. So we're like, oh, we're doing pretty good. So anyway, uh, I go back to school. I get a master's in marriage and family therapy, open up a private practice, then went on to get my PhD in um, sexology uh, and started just doing research to figure out what causes these couples who 24 hours before their wedding are excited about happily ever after whatever, two days, two weeks, two months, two years after their wedding, Mm. they're hurting, they're struggling, they're uh, not even friends anymore. That doesn't make sense. What in the Mm -hmm. world happened? Something funky is happening here. So I just start with basically with a blank sheet of paper. And, you know, again, i had gone through thousands of hours of education with my master's and doctoral programs, but they weren't giving me the answers I was looking for. Uh, They were describing the problem, but I wasn't finding the solution. So I just started doing research and eventually began, again, fast-forwarding a bit, but realizing that, okay, emotion is everything. Mm. Humans connect through emotions. Humans disconnect from unprocessed emotions. And through a vast amount of research, again, initially just observation, just watching interactions with uh, couples, going, when where did they lose each other? Uh, They Mm. sat down wanting... To be connected, and literally ten minutes later, twenty minutes later, they're at odds and they're having a huge fight. That doesn't make sense. They want a relationship. They want mm-hmm. connection. And I remember the day that I came home and I said, "Babe, I think I found it. I think I, based on research, <laughs> scientifically found what happens with people where they lose uh, each mm. other." And again, I'm the educated one. Phyllis is smart when she said well, if that's what causes people to disconnect, what if you reverse it? Is that mm-hmm. what causes people to connect? And I was like, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was my next point, which it really wasn't. Uh, I thought it was brilliant that I figured out what causes people to disconnect. And of course, mm-hmm. she's like, well, whoop de doo So we walk around and you know just tell people, you're doomed, you're doomed. You're doomed. <laughs> that's no great accomplishment. I think it'd be better if we actually figured out how to help them win relationally. And so I was like, oh. And so then I started running the research implement reversing the whole disconnect process and feeding that to people. And she was correct. And watching people begin connecting who had lost each other. And I was just startled mm-hmm. by that, that this was even doable. And that it was that freaking simple. That's what lit me up was, okay, they don't have to go through a two-year process. And they have to learn, you know, the periodic table. And they have to learn Latin. Then they'll be able to connect. Which people could do that, but dang, I mean, that's yeah. a lot. And to realize, oh, this is really, really simple. And it's actually already inside of them. They're we call it coding. They're hardwired uh, for this. They don't have to go externally and learn some new thing that's already actually inside them. It's amazing.
0: Mm. So I heard from you that humans disconnect from unprocessed emotions. Yeah. So the flip side would be humans connect from processed emotions. Yep. Mm. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. And again, when we've realized that, and we started watching it, observing it in interactions, I was just mesmerized and and, and thrilled, but also like, "Wait, what? Mm. This can't be that simple, but it is.
1: Well, you know, for so long, especially in the early years, we thought it was all logistics. If we can just <laughs> we would fight over logistics, and yeah. so it was it was a matter of, well, if you would you know if you love me, you would do this mm-hmm. correctly there was this correct, you know, that verbiage. Like, And there were many things that we discovered in our early years of marriage. Glenn, uh, as he shares really openly uh, on all of our podcasts and and just even in the book and in our masterclasses, is that he deals, is on the spectrum for a lot of psychological disorders. We didn't know that going into marriage. He didn't know that about himself. And so, there was a lot of black and white for Glenn. It's like, if you loved me, you would put my shirts on the red hangers. If you loved me, you would fold the towels correctly. So logistics was the thing that we so often fought about. And of mm. course, sex was the other thing we fought about. And it was just years of kind of what we, used, what we now call the court case, like showing up in court to mm. prove who's right or who's more right and who's more wrong. this situation. And we found that that's what couples all around us were doing. They were fighting over the logistics of a situation and they wanted to say, well, who's more right Mm -hmm. and who was wrong? There was always this right and wrong judgment on things. And it was exhausting. It was like, oh my gosh, I remember that I got to this point where I was like, I wish there was just cameras all Mm -hmm. in our house constantly recording what's happening so we could do the rewind and and see that scene again so mm-hmm. we can prove. I didn't say that five times with that snarky response. I only said it once and I said it very lovingly. That was like this fighting that we were doing over how many times it was said or how it was said. And eventually that's where we realized we are really missing each other, mm-hmm. barely, but we're really missing each other because mm-hmm. we weren't understanding the emotional the core emotion of what was happening for the person. And that was a huge moment for us. And and we often tell this story. It's what we call the dishwasher story, where Glenn would unload the dishwasher. And I would say something like, thanks, babe, for unloading the dishwasher. And he would respond, not with, you're welcome, but he Mm -hmm. would respond with what I call the snarky response, which was like, that's well, not the only thing I've done today, and that would then <laughs> lead to a disconnect that would lead to a fight that would sometimes last hours, sometimes days Ooh. of just disconnection yeah. and one day, probably twenty years into our marriage i that same thing happened, and i at that in that moment in time, I had a choice. I could either respond back with a snarky response. I could just be quiet and leave the
2: room, which, by the way, would have been justified. Mm-hmm. I mean, for her to go, "You're such a jerk. You're such mm-hmm. an idiot," you know, and, and walked out. Or she just rolled her eyes and be like, "Oh brother," mm-hmm. she would have. That would have been reasonable for her just to do it, but she didn't. She yeah. chose another. I chose
1: approach. to be curious, and I chose mm-hmm. to turn to him and say, "What is happening for you?" And it stopped him in his tracks, and he kind of his eyes got big. And, and my point was, what do you hear me say? And yeah. when he shared his, what was happening for him at the core, yeah. I was shocked.
2: Yeah, well, I happen to live with one of the most productive people on the planet, and she happens to live with <laughs> one of the lesser productive people <laughs> on the planet. So whenever I, she said, thanks for loaning the dishwasher, It sounded to me like she was making a big deal out of a little thing. And she's going, Mm. oh, my gosh, it's a miracle. Glenn did something useful for a change. Everybody, let's have a party. Throw some confetti. Mm. Glenn did something useful. And so it felt demeaning to me. It felt that she was making fun of me or insulting me, which none of which was happening uh, inside of her. And bear in mind, this happened literally hundreds, perhaps thousands of times. Uh, for us. So I felt so wounded. I felt demeaned and mm-hmm. humiliated and that she's announcing to the universe that, whoa, can you believe it? Glenn did something productive. <laughs> and so it just felt painful. And of course, mm-hmm. she didn't know that. And I didn't know that. I didn't know that was what was happening uh, for me. And so when she slowed down, she paused and she said, what happens for you when, uh, and I think I even gave her a snarky response. I, I said, well, you know, and she said, yeah, but what do you hear me say, I said, well, I hear you say what you said. And I, I didn't say the B word, but I thought it. And, um, and she said, yeah, but but like, what? what's the message mm. that you get from that? And then I told her and uh, something we call the ooh, she gave me the first ooh of our relationship. And she said, oh, that's the reason you respond the way you respond, which actually made sense to her because she mm. just insulted me profusely. So, of course, I'm not going to say you're welcome. I mean I'll just mm. you know I'll tell you you're a, a lazy sluggard and you're like, "You're welcome." That doesn't make any sense." <laughs> so she got that there was a whole bunch happening underneath the logistics underneath the surface, and I never knew that she never knew that until so we missed each other over and over again, so again, fast forwarding we started seeing that in inter- interactions in relationships that who wh- whichever one, but you know he's responding this way. Well, that's because an emotion happened that he's not aware of. She's not aware of. And they certainly did not process the emotion because they didn't even know it happened. And so he's sitting here with it, feeling pain. He's sitting here feeling shame. And so he gives her a nasty response and she's clueless like, oh my gosh, this guy's impossible to live with, which I was because it was constant. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. continuous day after day, after week, after month, after year of that.
0: Your dishwasher story reminds me of that joke where one partner turns to the other one and says, you just hear what you want to hear. And the other one says, I would like a beer. Thank you. (laughs) Which is to say, we often do interpret uh, what our partner is saying very differently than what they intend. And I would love to hear more from kind of both of you around what do couples fight about? Like when you observe most couples or if you were to have a camera into the conflict that most people have in relationships, what is the root? Because on the one hand, your dishwasher story reminds me that a lot of times couples argue about the silliest things, right? (laughs) Conflict happens over some of the smallest things that you wouldn't think normally would. Like I want the dishwasher loaded this way or unloaded this way, or this is how we need to organize our refrigerator. Right. But some say couples argue about those really big things, sex, money, kids. So in your experience, what are some of the biggest reasons for conflict in a relationship? Well, it may
2: sound absurd, but it's always emotion. It -hmm. has virtually nothing to do with the logistics. It's the emotion that's connected uh, to the logistics. And logistics are real. They do exist, but it's the emotion attached to it. Because our conflict was not over the dishwasher. Our conflict was not over whether or not I unloaded or loaded the dishwasher enough. The conflict was over the insult that I was experiencing. And, uh, and one and I get what you're saying, Zach, but I wasn't trying to experience that. I wasn't uh, trying to hear a message that she didn't say. That was just whats. And, and the emotion, the unprocessed emotion, is the missing ingredient. And then that makes it an insult. Well, Phyllis was not insulting me. But on the other side, I wasn't trying to feel insulted. So this emotion mm-hmm. gets in and I don't process it. And then it becomes this chemistry experiment gone wild that makes the whole laboratory blow up. So that's people are fighting over emotions, but they don't realize it. They think that they're fighting over the logistics of it.
1: And you know, part of our story is that I often said... Lynn has enough emotion for both of mm. us. I don't do emotion. Mm. So I wasn't tuning into myself at all. Kind of was raised in a home. I was the youngest of eight kids. We grew up in Germany. Uh, my parents were missionaries. It was like we weren't to speak at the dinner table, mm. you know, that it was just during a time where I learned pretty early to be quiet, to stay quiet, mm. to not have a voice. Mm. And what was really appreciated in my home, my home was tasks like cleanliness. Our home was always spotless. And wow. I just learned, okay, do tasks. People people like you when you are productive, when you do tasks. For me, it was don't tune into yourself and don't express a need. Don't wow. express when you're having pain, just endure it silently. And so I took that from my home into my marriage where I did not express what was happening for me. And I really believed that I could opt out of emotion. I did not understand the science behind emotion. I didn't understand that your brain houses mm-hmm. emotion, that it's a it's a command center. It's what it communicates. Like I think even to this day when emotion is, sp- is spoken about so often, it's such miseducation. It's like People that are faith-based even here you know, do not fear instead of realizing fear is actually a messenger. Fear is firing in your mm. brain. If we were all hooked up to a brain scan all the time, we mm. would be so much more emotionally <laughs> intelligent because we would be going, whoa, wow, mm. look at what I'm experiencing right now. But we don't have that technology at this moment. And so we're not hooked up to a brain scan mm. that's telling us. And so we actually have to learn it on our own. We have to slow down and we have to learn it And there's so Mm. much damage created by not knowing what Mm. is firing in our brain. And so often couples barely miss each other, but they miss each other Mm. because of what's firing in their brain. And if you don't know how to communicate that, which the only way to know how to communicate it is to know it's happening Mm. and to be able to slow down yourself and go, what's happening for me in Mm. this moment? And then when I have my own emotional health my own emotional intelligence, then I can communicate to Glenn what's happening for me, which then he's like, wow, I had no idea. So we could be walking down the street. I'm experiencing joy and noticing everything around me in that with the lens of joy. He's experiencing pain because he has a high fear experience on cracks in the sidewalk. So he's constantly looking down. And so what his body is experiencing is fear. I'm in this joy la la land, because I'm looking at all the houses or the, all the trees or whatever. No, it, I'm not noticing cracks at all because I don't experience fear around cracks. So if we have a tense moment because of something that's in front of us in the in the in the parking lot or whatever, I'm in the joy land. He's in the fear land. Mm. And so all of a sudden we're fighting over something that actually has nothing to do with the, our emotional condition. And that's how couples miss each other so often. Mm. But if he can express, oh, fear, fear, then right. I tune in. I'm like, whoa, babe, what's happening? And mm. he goes, look at all the cracks. And then I'm like, oh, wow, okay, I get it. He's experiencing fear. Yeah. And then we are tuned into each other. Yeah.
2: And the trick of that, though, is that it's so incredibly vulnerable. Mm. Uh, and we do this all the time, so I'm kind of used to it. But that sounds pretty absurd to say this grown man, he's you know a pretty successful professional. Feels fear about cracks. All mm-hmm. I just do. I'm not trying to feel fear. I just do. It's a pain mm-hmm. point. It's a fear point. So for me to be able to say that to her is incredibly vulnerable, incredibly mm-hmm. dangerous. And if I'm fairly certain she's going to judge me or demean me or think that's stupid, then I don't want to share that with mm-hmm. her because I don't feel safe. And the vast majority of relationships don't have safety, certainly don't have emotional safety. And so they don't share that. And so they're missing the whole point. Mm. You know, With the whole dishwasher thing, I got flooded with pain, emotional pain and shame. I felt humiliated. And so that was incredibly triggering for me. And she didn't know that. And of course, I didn't know it at the time. And we did that silly uh, dance, that detrimental experience. Again, who knows, hundreds, thousands of times over a period of about two decades.
0: <laughs> wow. So much to respond to. First I just want to say I really like Phyllis how you keep using this term miss each other. Like couples will miss each other because it has so many layers to its meaning, right? Just as we can miss something that we said, like oh I wasn't listening, I kind of missed it. So too, if we're like supposed to meet somewhere but we get the directions wrong, like we'll miss yeah. each other, we won't see each other. But then there's the longing that uh, from disconnection and separation that's formed when we don't get in touch with each other's emotional worlds. And the other layer that's just coming up for me is the problems you discuss in your relationships sound incredibly multi-layered and complex, right? We have like shame put on by the church. We have a lack of sex education that is just ubiquitous in 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 the United States. We have deeply ingrained patterns from childhood, based on your own familial upbringings, no awareness of emotions, all sorts of negative beliefs, limiting beliefs around how love is and how one acts in a loving relationship. And it all sounds like very rich material that would keep a therapist in business for a very long time. (laughs) But I also know that you both are very adept at cutting through all that with very simple tools. So you have one tool to change a relationship in 19 seconds and another one in four minutes. So let's talk about those first initial steps to cut, cut through the complexity and to, and to build connection. What are some of those tools?
2: Well, the 19 seconds is not so much a tool, but just what the research shows, which has started being replicated recently, which gives us more confidence in its uh, efficacy, because the very first research project I read that said that, I was like, well, that's silly. That doesn't even make sense. But what the research is (laughs) showing is that humans can't experience a core emotion for more than 19 seconds if it's not reactivated. Mm -hmm. And we reactivate emotions for each other all the time. Uh, There's lots of things that can reactivate. But one of them is me. I can reactivate her core motion for Phyllis. If she says to me, you know, I feel some sadness about this. I'm like, what? No, babe, don't feel sad about that. Mm-hmm. Well, all she has received, and we're talking about just the takeaway, the walk away, is that number one, you're wrong to feel sad. And Number two, you're stupid. So I've actually made it worse, not better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I did it from a good intention. I'm like, oh, babe, it's okay. And I pat her on the back, you know, I give her a hug. I'm like, yeah, "No, you don't have to feel sad. You're okay. We're doing fine. And she actually now feels worse. Than if I had uh, just been present uh, with her in that moment.
1: Well, it's interesting when you see this play out with kids, you know, you're putting your, your child to bed, your three-year-old to bed, and you kind of have that routine. And, you know, you're maybe got done reading the book, you're laying down and like, you're done, you're ready to get up and go. And they are not settling down. And if you can get your child to express what's happening for them, they may say, well, you know, there's monsters under the bed. And so what they're expressing is is fear. And then getting them to say that is super important, mm. like getting your child to say, well, I'm just, I'm feeling fear. Yep. And then that is that moment of 19 seconds where we can resist their energy by saying there are no monsters under the bed. Look, or I'll get up and open the closet. There are no monsters. And you well, don't
2: need to feel fear.
1: Right. You're just simply reactivating the fear. But if you will lay next to them and go, oh, yeah, I get that. It's like crazy because Mm. then they have felt heard. And then it's almost like that releases from their body. And before they know it, before you know it, they're actually going to sleep. And it's it's the simple things that you go wait a minute. I thought my job was to reassure mm. them that there are no monsters. My job, I thought, was to put the nightlight on and to put some sound on and to like fix everything so my child isn't experiencing fear. Mm. And actually, you're just reactivating their fear. But mm. if you will, if they feel heard by you and that you are acknowledging their fear not fixing it, not reassuring. It's crazy how their little bodies, it's mm-hmm. like it flows out of them yeah. and they settle and they can go yeah. to sleep.
2: Yeah, so the four-minute tool is actually a training to get mm-hmm. to be able to do this, to process in 19 seconds. And the four-minute tool is actually two minutes per person if two people are doing it, two plus two is four. So it's a four-minute experience. That's what we call the core emotion wheel. And the core emotion wheel, the whole setup is to retrain Glenn's brain to recognize emotions and to be able to be authentic, to be able to process the emotions. Because I spent much of my, certainly adult life, completely unable to process emotions. I didn't even recognize them. Uh, if you'd asked me how often I felt shame 30 years ago, I would have said never. And that's because I was drowning in shame all the mm. time. You know, <laughs> say, does the fish know that it's wet? Well, I don't know if it does or not. I mean, it's just wet. It's always wet. So The uh, core emotion wheel is designed to exercise our emotional muscle, to recognize the core emotions, to be able to verbalize them, to process them. Then we'll be able to do it in real time Uh, because the core emotion wheel is a staged enactment. Uh, But our goal is to do it in real time so that tomorrow afternoon, Lynn's able to experience something in the moment and go, oh, babe, I think I feel shame when you say that thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, we call it the three phrases. She literally goes, oh, wait, what what happened with Shane? What did I miss? And I tell her in one or two sentences, and she's just present with me. And then she'll do what we call the fourth phrase. She goes, so what do you need? I'm like, nothing really. I just need to tell you that. And we're about 19 seconds in, and it is processed, which is stunning to me. Again, when I first read this research, I didn't believe it. And I'm mesmerized that it's uh, not only possible but very doable, very implementable. Yeah,
1: and the tool came about just really. I feel like because I could not connect with my emotions, like I had turned them off so long, and I was around fifty when my body finally got tired of it all and said, "No more, not storing all these emotions for you anymore." And so I just had a you know a health crisis at that point, and Glenn was doing all this research, and so it was like. He was presenting this to me, but I needed it to be a simple tool, very tangible, where I could slow down and go, okay, what's happening with me? What are those eight emotions mm. that are firing in my brain that I never knew I even had? So I've ignored them for 50 years. And so it's mm. it's a simple way to go, what's happening in the region of anger? What's happening in the region of fear? And to tune in and to ask myself those questions and it be very simple. And of course, now, 10 years later, I'm much better at it, but it is... It is that simple of a tool. Mm. And what's incredible is when you see it play out with kids, they're mm-hmm. always so much quicker <laughs> to connect with them. They are so much faster to do that wheel. It doesn't take mm. them two minutes. And they, kids love this, yeah. this tool because it's so, there's, are so much closer still to their original coding where mm. we, by the time we're 50 have just right. lost it so badly. It takes so much more to get back there. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. so that's the simplicity of the tool. And this is probably a good time to even mention it, that for your listeners, we have uh, a way for them to get it for free to download Mm -hmm. it. If they just go to connectioncodes.co forward slash learn to love, it will direct them to a free download with all the instructions Mm -hmm. and a video that teaches them how to use Mm -hmm. that tool in their life and all their relationships, whether Mm -hmm. they're married or not. With their kids, with their coworkers, it's an incredible tool. Yeah,
2: but also for somebody like me, where Phyllis could say, "How are you doing?" and I could give her an hour and a half monologue mm, yeah. uh, on how I was doing. Well, she got mm. lost after like three sentences. You yeah. know, I mean, my God. and I literally did that many, 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 many times. I tried to always start that at about eleven thirty mm, at night, yeah. and uh, of course, his poor girl's in a coma by that point because she's got we've got babies and she's going to be up at five thirty a.m and uh she's just gone well for somebody like me the core emotion wheel helps me narrow it down Mm -hmm. so that it's manageable for her for me to be able to say one sentence maybe two now she knows she can Mm -hmm. handle one or two sentences she cannot handle an hour long what ended up looking like a lecture to her Mm -hmm. of what was happening for me well she's just doomed. I mean, she's dead, uh, especially if it's late at night. And now I'm able to convey to her literally in one or two sentences exactly concisely what's happening for me.
0: Yeah. Hearing you, I'm almost imagining two situations. One is that our partner is feeling an emotion and they're not aware of it themselves. The other one, of course, is where they they do verbalize it. And let's do the latter first, because I feel like that's easier to tackle. Because earlier you mentioned uh, Phyllis would say, I'm sad. And you would say, don't be sad. So when our partner does express, uh, let's say, negative emotion, that we have a tendency to fix uh, or want to change, what is the best way to respond in that situation? And I'm also thinking about the emotion of anger when they're like, "Yeah, I'm angry," and what are you going to do about it? Like, <laughs> I mean, like when there, there's sort of an attack to it, or maybe just, you know, a, a simple mirroring. Oh, you're angry? Yes, of course, I'm angry. It isn't going? Isn't the best method?
2: Right. It's what we call the three phrases. The first of the three is what we call the ooh. The ooh is just a label. There's several dozen versions of the ooh. It's just something audible. So it might look like, uh, Phyllis says, I feel sad. I go, oh, wow. Hmm, Okay. That was four different versions of the ooh there. It's just something audible. And that's what our research showed, was that if I'm audible with her, it tickles uh, the pleasure center of her brain. And a lot of times we will actually produce oxytocin, which is an emotion stabilizer. So the second phrase is what's happening. Um, you, you never ask why in relationships. You just ask what's happening. So for me to follow the you with to, to say, "Oh, babe, so what? What happens for you there?" And then the uh, third phrase is, "I missed it. Uh, what am I? What am I missing? Help me get what I'm missing here." And it's just an open invitation. I'm not telling her she's an idiot that she hasn't explained it better. I'm just saying to her, I think I'm missing something, which I am. Again, I may be missing it because she hasn't told me yet. So you put those together. Phyllis walks in. She goes, oh, I felt really hurt by what you said earlier. I can resist her energy. I go, what? No, I didn't mean anything bad by that. You didn't need to feel hurt by that. So I'm just resisting her. I'm telling her that she's wrong to feel hurt and she's stupid, which doesn't help any. And instead, what I do is I just go, oh, wait, what? What happened, babe? I think I missed something. And literally, I'm just inviting her into her own experience, into her own emotion, and she's going to process that with me. My intention is somewhat irrelevant. Now, if I'm hurting her on purpose, and I'm just a jerk, and that's a whole nother level, but I don't ever hurt her on purpose. So she, But she did feel hurt. She did mm-hmm. feel wounded. So for me, just to make safe space for her to process through that, it changes the whole dynamic. And again, literally in 19 seconds, she can process through uh, that emotional pain.
0: So the three phrases, first one is the ooh, second one is what's happening, and third is I missed it.
2: Yep, absolutely. And there's no deviation on the second phrase, what happened. We did the research on this exhaustively. Don't ask them what's going on, tell me more, what core emotion is that, how do you feel? Literally to just say, oh, so what, and there's three tenses, what happens, what happened, or what's happening. But for me to ask her, oh, babe, wow, so that was three oohs right there. So what happened? (laughs) for you. Catch me up on what I missed uh, with that. Uh, There's lots and lots of versions of the ooh, So it doesn't have to literally be the ooh. We just label it that way. Uh, But there's dozens of versions of it. It's just something audible.
1: You know, often when someone expresses, like, I feel so hurt by what you said, if they're even emotionally intelligent enough to be able to say that word Mm. or to be able to express that, so often we defend, well, I didn't mean to hurt Mm. you. I didn't Mm. mean that. You
2: you misunderstood me. It's actually your fault. (laughs)
1: Right. And that just reactivates the hurt. Then they feel hurt all over again. It's that whole 19 seconds Mm -hmm. thing. It's like Mm -hmm. we have a hard time making space for someone else's experience. We think we have to defend ourselves or explain ourselves or justify ourselves, you know, instead Mm -hmm. of going, oh. I hear you, and even by saying I missed it, it's not. It's I think earlier Zach, you said that, and you know you may have directions. You're both trying to meet at the park at this time at this spot, and right. you just miss each other. Like you went yeah. to the back side of the building, she went to the front side of the building. It's not out of a bad heart. It's just you missed it, and and there's times we miss with each other, and and I think people too often. Even the idea of saying I missed it, it's like, I don't want to ever be wrong. So I'm never going to admit mm-hmm. that I missed something. And that's that's a hard way to live. Like to be able to just say, I missed it. Even if I know that without a shadow of a doubt, I said five o'clock, but somehow he thought and heard me say six o'clock, mm. it's okay for me to say, oh, okay, I missed it. As in in that moment, I don't have to justify or mm. I don't have to explain or I don't have to prove. That I'm actually right.
2: Well, for me to be able to say, I missed conveying it clearly to you. I yeah. did. Now, is it, you know, did you miss it because you didn't pay better attention? Well, yeah, I guess. So mm-hmm. we actually both, Mr. Phyllis and I were meeting at a restaurant um, recently. And um, there's several locations of the restaurant. We always go to the same one. And she said, I'll, I'll meet you there. And I said, okay. Well, I ended up going to a different one because that's where I was. That was part of town I was in. And so I missed it. And I guess she missed it. She didn't specify it was that one. But it doesn't mean that she's evil or wrong or bad. It just Mm -hmm. means she missed conveying it clearly to me. And I missed understanding. And it's very much a dance. It's a relationship. And it's not that either one of us are wrong or bad or stupid or evil or anything. We just missed on Mm. it.
0: So what about if our partner is somewhat activated and they themselves don't know or are in a space to communicate their emotions? Is that a good time to bust out the the wheel and be like, so honey, which one are you feeling right now? (laughs) Well, I I would never say that. I would
2: just go, babe, what's happening?
1: Yeah, and it's a great time to pull out the wheel. People do it all the time. We did it yesterday. You know, that's the thing too. I mean, all of this started... With our story, mm. Glenn went back to school, got his doctorate, started a private practice. Has seen thousands of couples. Like all of these things are being are are being used. These tools are being used all over the world. That's the other really cool thing is that it does it. The language doesn't stop. Like all humans have this region in their brain mm. and this core emotion wheel. No matter what language it's in you know put into it works because it's helping people mm-hmm. tune into themselves and then tune in to what is that language mm-hmm. that universal language and mm-hmm. so you know if if you are activated or your spouse is activated and you bring out the wheel it's like it is saying i would love to hear what's happening mm-hmm. for you and it's a slowing down like you do have to slow down and you have to be able to go okay what is happening mm-hmm. with me and it is a beautiful way mm. to show up for each other and super practical mm. and, you know, to have that be like, okay, what is happening? Mm. And for that person, for both sides to hear what is happening is so it brings you together. It connects you mm. because too often we assume we know what mm. the other person right. is experiencing yeah. and we just don't. We can't read minds and it it's like you don't know without expressing it, without hearing it from the other person, what at the core. And there's times we think that, you know, we see anger in someone. And so often that secondary anger, it's mm. masking what's really happening. Mm. And often what's really happening, especially in in interpersonal relationships, it's not core level anger. It's It's that secondary anger that's masking pain of some kind, that's masking the hurt, the fear. There's something else under yeah. it.
2: Yeah. So practically speaking, or specifically, you know, Zach, you know, Phyllis, I can just tell that she's activated. She's lit up. Something funky's happening with her. Literally, I use, we call it the three phrases, and I'm literally going to go, Ugh, babe, I think I might have missed something. Could mm-hmm. you help me get what's happening for you? I'm a little slow sometimes. I'm a little dense, and I think I've missed something. <laughs> significant. Uh, and part of what that does is conveys to her that she matters to me, mm-hmm. uh, that I want to catch up. Uh, Because again, here's the thing. I could say to her, babe, you have not explained yourself very clearly. You have not conveyed to me what's happening for you emotionally. So you need to do a better Mm -hmm. job. You can't sell that to anybody on the planet. Whereas I can sell it to people. And and I've literally never had anybody argue with me in that whenever I say to them, hey, could you help me get that? I think Mm -hmm. I missed it. And it sounds like it matters to you. So could you catch me up, help me get what's happening for you? To this day, never had anybody resist that. Because everybody loves to tell their story. They love to convey what's happening uh, for them. Mm -hmm. And so whenever I just make safe space and invite them into that space, people jump at the opportunity.
0: I like that. I would love to hear what's happening for you. Such a powerful statement. Mm -hmm. Especially when I convey that it's because I miss
2: something. And Mm -hmm. I even say to people, I I do it with, of course, I do this as my vocation, but I do it with clients. I'm like, hey, I'm a little dense sometimes. Could you help me get that part? because I think I missed it cuz it makes perfect sense to them.
1: Right. Right.
2: But I'm a little slow. Could you help me
0: get it cuz I just and people don't don't get another therapist that's less dense. <laughs> well, I have no No, I maybe they do. I don't know.
2: They never talk to me again. But I think in reality what it does is they're like, "Okay, this dude is willing to say that he missed something. And it's not just because I'm a bad mm-hmm. human or a bad patient. And so I haven't explained myself clearly enough. No, it's because he missed it. And I mean, the reality is, and I know this is going out public, but you know, I'll sit in seven, eight, nine, ten 10 sessions in a row. So by four 30 in the afternoon, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I mean, I've just one human too. And I may miss something because I zoned out and getting you know, not from a bad intention. I just, been a long day and I think that went right over my head. Could you help me get that? Make sure I'm up to speed, make sure I catch up uh, with you because I think I missed it and I want to know what happened uh, for you.
0: So as we're winding down, we only have time for a couple more questions. I really quick just want to hear the eight core emotions and if there's anything specific you think we should know about them.
2: Yeah, well, what the research showed us was that there are five neural regions and literally there are five areas in the brain that house the emotions that are the central command center. Emotions occur throughout the body but the central command center is in the limbic system in the brain, and anger, disgust, uh, fear, pleasure, and pain, and that's true for every human on the planet. We divide the pain region into hurt, sad, and lonely because it looks so different on a brain scan. Uh, hurt, has lot, it looks like a fireworks display. Sad doesn't have the big peaks. And then lonely is kind of a dull, aching pain, but is equally as uh, damaging. But all three of them fire in the pain region of the brain, they just look different. And then the disgust region, we divide into guilt and shame. They actually look identical on the brain scan. We have thus far not been able to differentiate them. But the body language is so different. Facial expressions, you know, just behavior is different. And so we distinguish guilt and shame. Although you'll hear a lot of people say, you know, I feel guilt and shame about that. They just lump them together, which is fine. It doesn't matter. So eight core emotions then are the anger, fear, hurt, sad, lonely, guilt, shame, uh, and then joy. And joy is in the pleasure uh, center of the brain, and everybody thinks that joy is the good one, that it's the positive mm-hmm. one, but it's not. Emotions are not positive or negative; they just are. And people make idiotic decisions based on joy. And there are plenty of people who binge watch a show from you know 10 p.m. to 4:30 a.m. and they have to get up to go to work at 6:30. Uh, And they were flooded with joy and they just kept watching the next episode, the next episode. And now they're actually uh, a tremendous detriment to themselves, including things like cocaine addiction. Well, that's a joy experience. So joy (laughs) led them to cocaine and processed joy led them to cocaine uh, addiction. So. The, the other beautiful part of this, is we're talking about that because Phyllis and I are so different, it helps us to get it into the common language. Every mm. human on the planet knows what's, what fear is. Every human on the planet knows what hurt uh, is. And when we're able to get it to that, and what the research showed was that when I say to Phyllis, I feel fear, it actually tickles the fear region of her brain. And it becomes a shared human experience. And we connect through that. We bond through that. So now I'm not discussing the logistics. You know, babe, you're driving too fast. Well, that's a tough sell Mm. Uh, for me to say to her, (laughs) you're driving irresponsibly. You know, you need to be more careful. I don't think there's anybody on the planet that you can sell that to. Whereas if I say to her, "Whoo, I'm getting flooded with fear, 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 fear. And for her to do the three phrases, we literally do this motion, and she goes, "Oh, what's happening with fear? What am I missing?" I'm like, "I don't know. I'm just sitting here in the driver's or the passenger seat, and I'm just getting hit with fear because you know I'm not sure where you're going and what you're doing and how you're doing it." And then she does the fourth phrase. She goes, "What do you need?" I'm like, "Would you be willing to slow down? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it would just really help me a lot. It would it would lower my fear experience." And we do all of that literally in 20 seconds, which blows my
0: mind that that's possible to do i would not have thought it was but it is so i'll have to finish by asking both of you the last question i ask all of my guests so we'll do it one at a time let's do dr glenn first dr glenn what do you wish everyone knew about love about love um
2: well it may sound silly but the connection codes uh, and the reason is because the connection codes are based on the human condition not the connection codes that we not our book, The Connection Codes, but the actual how humans connect. I wish that I had known when we first actually before we married, how to be how to present to Phyllis what was happening with me and how to be safe for her in presenting it to me. We would have spared ourselves massive amounts of pain, trauma, wounding, mm. damage. Uh would have made a tremendous difference for us. And that's our passion, by the way. We live that now. We're mesmerized by it. That's the reason we're passionate about sharing this with the world,
0: because it works. Lovely. Yeah, it's really true that you guys are walking your walk, that you're using your own tools. And Phyllis, what do you wish everyone knew about love?
1: You deserve it. And for us, I think thinking, starting off thinking I was just broken Mm. and to know the truth And to know and to see the hope. I think at times people think, well, I didn't find love with this person, so I'm gonna go find it with someone else. And to realize that our story says you gotta have the right tools. Mm. You got to have the right tools. It's not just a matter of getting lucky or finding the one, Mm. it's actually having the tools to know how to communicate what you need and just to be able to figure out what's happening for yourself. But everyone deserves love.
0: Lovely. Thank you so much, Dr. Glenn and Phyllis Hill for coming on to the show. And for our listeners who want to learn more about you, how can they find you?
1: Well, all over the place, Instagram Connection Codes on our website, connectioncodes.co. And again, don't forget to do the forward slash learn to love because then you get the free download and all that information. But we have our own podcast. You can listen to a new episode every Tuesday. And we have a book that you can buy on Amazon, Mm. The Connection Codes. Mm.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, both of you, for taking time out of your busy days to come on. I so appreciate it. And thank you, listeners, for listening to the show. We hope you remember all the valuable lessons that Dr. Glenn and Phyllis Hill shared with us today, including, you all heard it here, emotion is everything. Humans disconnect from unprocessed emotions and humans connect from processed emotions. Couples will miss each other if they are not connecting to the core emotion of the other person. And humans can't experience a core emotion for longer than 19 seconds if it's not reactivated. Three phrases can help. Ooh, what's happening? And I missed it. Uh, second one, I would love to hear what's happening for you. So crucial to hear in our relationships. There's eight core emotions, anger, disgust in the form of guilt and shame, fear, pleasure, joy, and pain in the form of hurt, sadness, and loneliness. And don't forget, you deserve love.
2: Mm. If you want. (laughs) (laughs) Stuff notes there.
0: good. If you want to learn more about me, you can go to ZachBeach.com and learn more about the show at TheHeartCenter.com. Thanks again, Glenn and Phyllis. Oh, love it. Thank You're you, welcome. Zach. Thank you, Zach. Thanks again for listening to the Learn to Love podcast. To learn more about the show and your host, head over to ZachBeach.com or TheHeartCenter.com. You can also follow Zach on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.